This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 38. We're going to uh, leave off Exodus for the month of December to uh, engage in in an Advent series in which we look at some passages from the Gospel of John, in, in which Jesus talks about why he came to this world. We're going to focus on verse 38. However, I want us to begin our reading in verse 35. Hear the word of God from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Give thanks to the Lord for his inerrant word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation, which are able to feed and strengthen our souls. And Father, we pray as we study your word this morning that your word would do precisely that in our lives. Father, we pray that as we think of these things, that you would stir our hearts to worship you, to give glory to you, and to feed on the one who is the bread of life. We pray in his name. Amen. Why Christmas? Or more to the point, why was Jesus born? Now, I think if I were to ask you individually that question, we would all give a general answer to that question. Well, he he was born in order to save us from our sins. And that's true. And we thank God that that is true. However, this December, uh, this Advent season, we want to look at some very specific reasons that Jesus himself gives for why he was born, why he came into this world that helped to flesh out what it means that he came to save us from our sins, that, that gives some, some specific uh, points of reference to what are involved in Jesus saving us from our sin. Now, as we look at these passages, we'll find at various places in John's gospel, all of them in John's gospel, uh, they're all statements Jesus makes where he says something to the effect of, this is why I have come. 
This is, or as in the case here, this is why I've come down from heaven. And here in verse 38, we have that first statement. And as he tells us here in verse 38, the Son of God became a man in order to do his Father's will. He became a man, he says here, in order to do his Father's will. Now, this verse falls in the context of of John chapter 6. Uh, which if you wanted to just apply a heading to it, just for your own understanding of Scripture, John 6, think feeding of the 5,000 and subsequent discussion. Uh, because, of course, the chapter starts out with John's account of Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, but then the crowds continue to follow Jesus and pursue Jesus, and Jesus says to them, look, you're following me just because I gave you bread. Well, don't just work for this physical bread, work for the bread that gives eternal life. That's what you should be pursuing. That's what you should be after. In other words, not so much the miracle from Jesus' hands, but the truth from his lips. And he challenges them. He confronts them about that and about their following him. And they say, well, what do we have to do to do the works of God? Jesus answers in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now, they challenge him a little bit. Well, what do you do to prove that you're the one we should follow? After all, our forefathers got manna in the wilderness. And by the way, this provides an excellent segue from our studies in Exodus into this passage today, because uh, Jesus' reference to coming down from heaven actually looks back to what he said about the manna. Notice in John 6, verse 32, Jesus said, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is comparing himself to the manna as the manna came down from heaven with Jesus himself as the true bread, the bread of life, the one to whom that manna points, who also has come down from heaven. But there's more to it than just descending, as we will see. Now, as we think about specifically his statement in verse 38, though with reference to verses around it, helps us to break it down into its three parts. He makes here statements about his origin. He makes a statement about his submission. And he also makes a statement about his mission that he came to do. So first of all, let's look at what he says about his origin. Verse 38, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven. Now, again, that's sort of with an eye back toward the the manna coming down. But there's so much more here when it has to do with Jesus, the true bread that comes down from heaven. It speaks to his pre-existence. We talk about Jesus being born at Bethlehem, and it's true. But we need to make sure that we don't understand Jesus' birth at Bethlehem as Jesus' beginning. Now, it was his beginning in human form. But Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, existed well before Bethlehem. In fact, he existed from eternity past as God. And so Jesus' own view of his coming into this world was not so much beginning here as it was entering here, coming into this world, or as he says, coming down from heaven. Now, The scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, which, of course, is all before Bethlehem, before Jesus' birth, uh, give us hints of this pre-existence of Jesus. In fact, we've talked about uh, even with Moses and the burning bush or other appearances or works of God in the Old Testament, 
Now, some have said that these may well have been instances of pre-incarnate Christ. And there's one instance in particular we know it was. Think of Isaiah chapter 6, familiar passage where Isaiah has his call from God uh, to declare a message that instead of saving would effectively harden and by hardening be a message of judgment, a tough task. But remember, when God meets Isaiah, he reveals himself in all of his majesty and his glory. The angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm undone. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. This, This glorious deity, this glorious being, this glorious God that reveals himself to Isaiah. John says that was Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 41. That the one whom Isaiah saw was Jesus. Now he doesn't name Jesus, but it's clear in the context there. He's talking about Jesus and the fact that people were blind, that seeing they didn't see and hearing they didn't hear, just like the Lord said to Isaiah. And he applies that to Jesus. He says because it was him whom Isaiah saw in his glory. That was Jesus that Isaiah saw, pre-existent, pre-incarnate Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6. And of course, familiar passage in the New Testament, uh, just a few chapters before here, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's referring there to Jesus. So when we think of Jesus coming down from heaven, that very language indicates that he existed before Bethlehem, but came down from heaven to earth as he was born of the Virgin Mary uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're looking here at his preexistence. It also has something to say to us about his incarnation. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. Well, he he didn't appear to them, uh, except at the transfiguration to his disciples, in glory. He looked like a man. Mary held a human baby. The the Jews opposed a human being. Disciples followed a man who, who ate with them and spoke with them. This was a human being. So this speaks not only to his preexistence, but to his incarnation. The word itself means to, to take on flesh. You know, if you've ever had like Mexican food, chili con carne. Carne is related to the same word as incarnation, to take to oneself flesh, to put on flesh. Uh, Jesus became man without ceasing to be God. You see, Christmas is a celebration of that mystery of the incarnation, that while continuing fully in his deity, he takes to himself a human nature, human body. So that he is just as fully human as you are, as I am. Sinless, yes. Let's say, could he be truly human then? Well, absolutely. Because once upon a time, at least our forebears, Adam and Eve, were without sin. They were more human than we are now in our sin. Jesus was fully human without ceasing to be fully God. Cause for worship. Calls for celebration that Christ, the Son of God, became a man, became one of us, essential to our salvation. If he wasn't one of us, how could he be our substitute? That's why the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for human sin. Bulls and goats are not human beings, but Jesus was.
And so we recognize, even in these words, I've come down from heaven, his preexistence, but also his incarnation, but also his humiliation. For Jesus to leave the glories of heaven and to come and live here in this fallen world. You think sin around you depresses you. You haven't seen half of what Jesus saw in his sinlessness when he left the glory of heaven and when he lived here as a human being in this world. He saw the effects of sin. He saw sin itself. He saw the devastation. He saw the darkness of it. He saw the power of it in a way that you and I never will because we're like fish in the water. We're used to it. We see it. We live in it. We become accustomed to it. But Jesus saw it with eyes that we don't have. To see sin in this world. But the humiliation. No, he didn't cease to be God, but he did give up the glory of God. Philippians 2 speaks so eloquently to that. That being in very nature God, he did not consider that something to be grasped. And the the idea is something that he would selfishly cling to for his own benefit. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. Did he cease to be God? No. But he did cease to enjoy and manifest the radiance and the glory, the beauty of God. It was revealed in the transfiguration just briefly. But by and large, Jesus set that glory aside, set aside the the adoration of the angels, the glory of heaven itself, to live here in this world for our sakes. How much there is, how much theology in just a few words, for I have come down from heaven. The very words to come down speak to his humiliation. Yes, you might think of heaven above and earth beneath, uh, but come down really has more to do with his humiliation than any spatial direction. And again, a hint of the manna that came down, but Jesus coming down was, was more to his humiliation than simply descending. So it speaks to us of his origin, speaks to us also of his submission. Notice what he goes on to say. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. As human beings, what's the first thing we learn as as babies? We want to do our will. We want our will to be done. The crying baby wants milk and he wants it now. We want our will. We want to do our will. We want what we want, and we don't want anyone to stand in the way of our getting what we want. Now, as adults, we might get a little more sophisticated with that, but that's fallen human nature. The Lord is not God. I'm God, and I want what I want. Now, Jesus was God. Jesus was sinless man. And when he came into this world... His purpose was not to serve himself. It was not to do what he wanted to do. Notice uh, various places in the scripture. In fact, just over a chapter in chapter five, Jesus says this at various points in his ministry, makes it plain. He's not here to do what he wants to do, but rather to do the will of his father. Notice verse 19. Truly, truly. This is chapter five, verse 19. I say to you, the son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then again, chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
So Jesus was always conscious of his father, of his father's will, doing his father's will, not doing what he wanted to do. We'd say, well, did he ever want to do otherwise? Well, I thought about that, and several instances came to mind. Uh, and, and if you thought about it, you might think of these. Maybe they come to mind. Maybe others come to mind. But there are a few instances where Jesus could have done his own will. Uh, you think of what some of those might be. Well, think of Matthew 4, Luke 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What was Satan trying to get Jesus to do? You say, well, to serve Satan. Uh, yes, in a way, but really trying to get Jesus to serve himself. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus could do that. The one who called a universe into being out of nothing could tell stone to become bread. Omniscience can do such things. And Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting a long time. Satan says, well, you know, serve yourself. Have it your way. Just just make some bread here. It'll be good. It'll taste good. You're hungry. Human being, you need to eat, right? Jesus says, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A higher principle than serving oneself is to serve the Lord. Jesus recognized that. So he counters Satan. Uh, that was, that was an instance where he would be tempted to serve himself. We think of another case. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another time of extremity in his life. And isn't that, isn't that when it seems Satan attacks the best? When we're under duress. When we're stressed. When we're tired. When we're hungry. Here's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the shadow of the cross the next day to die, not just an excruciatingly uh, a painful death physically, but to die as the sin bearer, to die under the Father's displeasure, indeed under the Father's wrath. And Jesus prays to his Father, if there is any way possible, let this cup pass from me. What was Jesus' will? His will was that somehow he could bypass the cross, which was a temptation of Satan's as well, in the wilderness. If there is any way, let this cup pass from me. What did Jesus want? He wanted, if there was any way to accomplish the same thing, to do it without the cross and what that would mean for him. But Jesus said, I've come not to do my own will. And then, just a a little while later, when the uh, soldiers come to arrest Jesus and his disciples uh, make efforts to try to fight, to protect him or to defend him, Jesus says, hold on, don't you realize that I could call down from heaven 12 legions of angels, the mighty warriors of God for whom the Romans are no match whatsoever? Jesus says that, which tells you that was on his mind. Did he give thought to the possibility of doing that? He could have done it. May have been his will to do it. But as Jesus says, I've come not to do my own will. Your friends, if we're going to be Christ-like, part of following Jesus, part of discipleship, part of living the Christian life, is having that that principle in steel in our souls and the spine of our souls that I am not here to do my will. I might want to sin. I might want to serve myself. I might want to do this or that. 
that Jesus said, I've not come to do my own will. But, he says, the will of my Father. So we see his origin. We see his submission there. He had come not to carry out his own agenda, not to seek his own preferences. He had come at the command of another and was at the service of another. And that leads us into the third statement Jesus makes here, and that is his mission. Look at verse 38 again. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, that language, sent me, tells us Jesus had been sent to do a mission, to accomplish something, to do the will of him who sent me. Echoes back uh, John 3.16, which we read earlier. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or we could say he sent his only begotten son. To use Jesus' language here, he was sent by the Father to do his Father's will. Now, we think, well... You know, Jesus' death on the cross was important, yes, but his obedience was important to the law of God. That's why Paul says in Galatians, he was born under the law. What does that mean? Well, it meant that he was, he placed himself in effect under his own law to obey it, to live it, to carry it out, because you and I have it. Every day we violate God's laws by doing what he tells us not to do, by not doing what he tells us to do. By the way, the greatest sin you and I commit is not what we do, it's what we fail to do. Jesus said the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if those are the greatest commandments, the greatest guilt is incurred by breaking the greatest commandments, and we break them by not doing something. So our greatest sins, I would argue, are sins of omission, failing to do What God calls us to do, which is to love him every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, with our entire being. I haven't done that today. You haven't either. But Jesus did. And we see that manifested here. This this absolute devotion to obedience to his Father, his general will, obeying the law of God. Important, yes, but not what Jesus is talking about here. Except as something incidental to it. That's important that Jesus obeys his Father, that he does his will at every point, tempted yet obedient. That's essential to our salvation. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here, although it's a part of it. When he says, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, he's not speaking of general obedience to God's law. He's speaking of accomplishing a very specific mission the Father had sent him to do. What was that mission? Well, Jesus speaks of it in verses 39 and 40. He says, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So we could summarize that by saying part of Jesus' mission was to secure the salvation of the elect. Why do I say the elect? Well, He refers there to to losing nothing of all that the Father has given to Jesus. What has the Father given to Jesus? Well, he's given a people to Jesus, a very specific people. Actually referred to back in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Part of Jesus' mission was to secure the salvation of those whom the Father had given to Jesus by his death on the cross, by 
fulfilling that mission of living under the law, dying on the cross the Father had given him, so that he, he would lose none of them. It's not as though he's going to save most of those the Father had given him, but maybe a few would slip through the, crack, through the cracks and, and, and get lost. Jesus says, I will lose not one. Of, he says, of all that the Father has given me, I will lose nothing. Not one drop, not one bit, all of it. Without raking leaves yesterday, kept pulling for it to rain, but it just wouldn't. It did sprinkle a little bit on me. And I started raking, and I didn't think we had that many leaves under the the tree in our front yard. But the more I raked, the bigger that pile got. But at the same time, there were a lot of leaves that got left behind. These small, you know, Chinese elm leaves aren't easy to rake. And yeah, I got a bunch of them, but there were a lot that, that just were down in the grass and just sprung up and fell back into place, so the wind blew back. I got up all of them I could, but there was still a lot that got left behind on the ground. And there's still leaves on the tree, so we'll be out doing this another day sometime for too long, I imagine. I'm thankful that Jesus' approach to those whom the Father had given him wasn't like that. A lot of leaves got on that tarp and got hauled off, but there were a lot of leaves that didn't make it onto the tarp. Well, with Jesus, every last one for whom he died will be saved. Not one of them will be lost. That's part of Jesus carrying out the will of his Father. The will of his Father for the salvation of all of the elect, all whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, if that makes you nervous, speaking of the elect, of this fixed number of those whom the Father has chosen to be his own, to be redeemed by the Son, drawn by the Holy Spirit, we'll move on then to verse 40, which says not only the the, the secure the salvation of the elect, but the salvation of all who believe. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, here he speaks more of it more from the human point of view. When you're speaking of election, it's speaking more of God's decree, those whom the Father has given to the Son to be his people, to be those whom he would redeem. Here it's spoken of more from the human side. Who are those? Well, they're all who believe, all who look on the Son that is in faith and believe in him will have eternal life. And Jesus will raise them up, resurrect them on the last day to live in the new heavens, the new earth, the new universe. It's restored by the redeeming work of Christ on that great day when he returns. So what is the will of the Father? Well, it's this very specific, very focused mission of winning the salvation of the elect, or to look at it another way, winning, saving all of those who look on Jesus in faith. By the way, these two verses just echo verse 37, which refers to both. All that the Father gives me will come to me which is another way of saying the elect will certainly be saved. They will come to Jesus. And the flip side of that is whoever comes to me, I will never cast out or I will never drive away. Which is it? It's both. Both the Father's sovereignty and salvation, and yet human responsibility upon hearing of Christ to repent of our sins, to believe in him, to follow him. That's the mission. That's the will of God, the salvation of his people. And why was Jesus born? Well, it was to do that will. It was to carry out that rescue mission. See, like uh, like a, a special forces commando, Jesus was inserted into this world at Bethlehem to live among us, carry out God's will, and then to enact a raid to rescue the hostages. That raid took place on Calvary. 
where Jesus died to atone for the sins of everyone, past, present, and future, who would believe in him and freed them from their captivity to sin and death. Remember what Jesus said just before he died? He said, it is finished. Now, we don't get the tone of voice from printed words, but it would be possible to take that in in a tone of dejection. It's over. It's finished. Was Jesus saying there that that his his life was finished? His, His hopes, his dreams were dashed? They were finished? No. Now, he was weakened to be sure, but I believe there was a definite note of triumph in those words. Because what Jesus said before he died was, it is finished. What is finished? The task that the Father gave me to do is finished. I have accomplished it. Mission accomplished is what Jesus was saying when he said, it is finished. He rose from the dead on the third day as a signal of the success of his mission. You recognize that you are a captive, that you are a captive of the world and your fallen nature and the devil, that you are under the power of sin and death, that unless Jesus rescues you, you will remain a captive and die in your captivity. And that like a captive, bound, hand and foot, blindfolded, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You see, Jesus came to do the will of the Father, which was a rescue mission, to rescue you. But you do have to take hold of him. You do have to respond. Have you done that? You see, you have to let him carry you on his flogged, bloody back. You have to let him hold you in his nail-pierced hands. You have to let him carry you on his nail-scarred feet. Because only he can rescue you. Only he can save you. As he said in verse 39, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Rescued. Redeemed. Now that's something to celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending the Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for not doing your own will, but the will of the one who sent you. We recognize, Father, that because Jesus did it, because he accomplished the mission, We will be with you. Glory forever. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit, for drawing us to Jesus, for opening our eyes. We might lay hold of him and look on him in faith. We pray it in his name. Amen.